Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been a very busy week this week with plenty across sanctions, fraud, money laundering and cyber attack news. There's also quite a bit of holiday reading that I'm going to direct you to if you want to fill up your holiday with a great deal of fun. So let's crack on. As usual, what I've done is I've linked the main stories and I flag them in the podcast description. So we'll start this week with sanctions where it's been quite busy. The sanctions news comes from a range of places this week. We'll start with the European Union, which has sanctioned a Rwandan army officer for his support and involvement in the rebel offensive in Congo last year. It's also sanctioned a, a range of individuals related to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. First, seven individuals and five entities for spreading propaganda about the invasion. Later in the week, the EU again issued further sanctions, only this time they targeted Belarusian support for the invasion. Belarus, of course, under Lukashenko, has been a key ally to Putin and supported Russia and Putin in as many ways as they could do since they've invaded Ukraine. Consequently, Belarus has been the focus of sanctions regimes around the world. This time, the sanctions relate to Belarusian actions in aiding Russia's circumvention of sanctions, as well as additional sanctions for human rights abuses. The link to the Council of Europe of the EU's press release, together with the European Commission's response to it, are linked in the podcast description. To Japan, we don't really turn to Japan much, but anyway, to Japan now, where the government has issued further sanctions on Russia, including vehicles fitted with engines of 1900cc or greater, as well as export restrictions on vehicles which are hybrid or electric motor driven. Now to the UK, which has had a busy old week on the sanctions front. Six individuals have been added to the Russia sanctions regime and one entry has been amended. These sanctions arise out of the appeal which was rejected this week of Vladimir Karamurza against his 25-year sentence for, among other things, treason. Karamurza's apparently treasonous acts in the eyes of the Russian authorities was to criticise the war in Ukraine. The sanctioned individuals include three judges, two prosecutors and an expert witness. The Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has also issued a licence which allows payments and other permitted activities to take place in relation to insolvency proceedings against uh, associated with two Irish GTLK companies and their subsidiaries. GLTK is the Russian leasing company which, at the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, had subsidiaries around Europe. Those entities became subject to sanctions and, consequently, they become insolvent. The final bit of news from Offsy crept out right at the end of the week and with news that it's updated its reporting forms for the oil price cap and the maritime services ban general licences. The link to all of the notices together with the updated consolidated list can be found in the podcast description. And finally, we finish our sanctions news this week by turning to the United States, which has been, like the UK, very active this week on the sanctions front. First, the US Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, has 
targeted four individuals in Bosnia and Herzegovina for being directly responsible for encouraging the passage of a law that purports to declare the decisions of the Bosnia and Herzegovina Constitutional Court inapplicable in a named republic. That republic is Republika Spurska. That pronunciation is bound to be wrong. Uh, one of the two entities composing Bosnia and Herzegovina, thus obstructing and threatening the implementation of the Dayton Peace Agreement. Secondly, OFAC has continued its pursuit of ISIS and Al-Qaeda across the globe with sanctions against cells of those organisations in Maldives. The sanctions include individuals as well as corporations associated with the sanctioned individuals. Thirdly, OFAC has announced the amendment and reissue of the Mali sanctions regulations in their entirety. They take effect on the 7th of August 2023 when they're published in the Federal Register. Links to the announcement and the regulations can be found in the podcast description. I told you there was a decent wedge of sanctions news this week, but that's it. Over and done with now. Let's turn our attention to fraud. This week, the institutions of the European Union, particularly the European Public Prosecutor's Office, have been busy issuing indictments. It does this regularly, almost as regularly as the DOJ, in fact, in the US. This week, a couple of notable ones which I thought were worth mentioning. First, to Lithuania where five individuals and two entities have been indicted for alleged fraud on two co-funded EU projects, the farming of livestock and a wellness centre. As the press release provides, the beneficiaries of the funding and their accomplices are accused of submitting false documents to certify the implementation of the work related to these projects with the help of a construction maintenance manager who is additionally charged with negligence in carrying out his duties. The funding applicants are also accused of simulating the payment of their financial contributions by making transactions between bank accounts managed by their accomplices. Finally, the organiser of the scheme and one of the accomplices has been charged with embezzling €90,000 from one of the companies. Secondly, in Germany, eight individuals have been indicted for alleged VAT fraud involving trade in luxury cars and medical face masks. The estimated value of the fraud is 80 million euros. Links to both press releases can be found in the podcast description. Now, in the UK, and on the subject of VAT fraud, as it happens, an individual convicted of fraudulent evasion of VAT has been made the subject of a confiscation order in the sum of almost £1.3 million. If the order isn't paid within three months, seven years will be added to the five and a half years in prison he's already serving. We'll stay with the UK, where the Financial Conduct Authority has announced the outcome of civil case which it launched in November 2020 against the perpetrators of a Ponzi-style investment scheme. The scheme, which promoted investments in care homes run through certain companies, asked investors to purchase a long-term lease in a room and then sublet the room back to the companies. Investors were promised returns of being between 8 and 10% of the purchase price over the period of the sublease. That seems like a classic Ponzi scheme tactic to me. If something sounds too good to be true, it almost certainly is too good to be true. Anyway, the leases cost between 50 and 75,000 pounds. Well, this week the High Court found in favor of the Financial Conduct Authority in agreeing that the scheme was unlawful. The press release and link to the judgment can be found in the podcast description. To the US now, where once more the authorities continue to chase COVID-19 fraudsters. First, 
a guilty plea to fraud on the coronavirus recovery schemes in the US. This time, it's a business operator from Springfield, Missouri, who pleaded guilty to wire fraud for claiming almost $14 million in loan support from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. That's the CARES Act. The other is the announcement of a charge against an individual who's alleged to have claimed over two million pounds, sorry, two million dollars, of course, fraudulently from the Payment Protection Program and the Economic Injury and Disaster Loan Scheme. Links in the podcast description. Now, these coronavirus scams don't seem to want to give up, so expect them to keep on coming. A couple of other big stories from the US this week relating to, I suppose, crypto and associated issues. First, the Securities and Exchange Commission has announced a temporary asset freeze restraining order and other emergency relief against Digital Licensing Incorporated in relation to a fraudulent scheme concerning the sale of crypto assets. Link to that is in the description. The second story is that two individuals, this is a really interesting one, have been convicted of hacking into the crypto exchange Bitfinex in 2016 and subsequent laundering of the proceeds of that hack. Russian-born tech entrepreneur Ilya Liechtenstein and aspiring rapper Heather Morgan the Bitcoin Bonnie and Clyde, as they've been termed, had guilty pleas of money laundering conspiracy accepted by the court this week. The final stories might, I suppose, be connected. First, Kristen Hecht, who previously worked with Meta and HSBC in China, has been announced as Deputy Chief Compliance and Global Money Laundering Reporting Officer at Binance. Secondly, many newswires have reported this week that Binance is facing fraud charges from the US Department of Justice. However, there's a good deal of caution being associated with the news because of the fear that any charging decision might spook the markets. To be frank, anything can spook markets. This speculation, which is across the wires, all the news agencies are talking talking about it, could well spook the market. Markets will be spooked by anything. Anyway, we'll keep an eye on that one. Now that's it for fraud. We'll turn our attention to money laundering, which has also had a decent wedge of news this week. We'll start with the International Monetary Fund, which has produced a technical note on anti-money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism in Iceland. The note identifies that while the banking sector in Iceland is small relative to many other economies, there has been an improvement in recent years in the supervisory understanding and assessment of money laundering and terrorist financing risks. However, Further enhancement, it is noted, in risk assessment tools and increased data collection will amplify the accuracy of the authorities' focus on supervision of banks where AML and CFT are concerned. Now, in 2018, the Financial Action Task Force undertook its mutual evaluation of Iceland, and since that time, the supervisory authorities have conducted thorough, full-scope inspections on AML and CFT of all banks. Further, Iceland has taken significant steps to establish a registration regime for virtual asset service providers, so-called VASPs, established in or operating in the country. However, efforts should continue to detect unlicensed activities. Link to the full report can be found in the podcast description. That was quite a lengthy story. Anyway, to the UAE, the United Arab Emirates now, where plans have been announced to establish bodies to prosecute money laundering and financial crime. 
This action appears to have been taken largely in response to the Financial Action Task Force placing the UAE on its list of jurisdictions under increased monitoring, the so-called Grey List, which was confirmed actually at the most recent plenary in June 2023. In July 2023, the FATF updated on the progress being made by UAE on combating money laundering, indicating that it's now compliant with 15 of the FATF 40, largely compliant with 24 of the 40, and partially compliant with one. UAE has no non-compliant ratings. However, the UAE remains on the enhanced follow-up list linked to the FATF current grey list and the latest press release from the FATF on UAE's status is in the podcast description. In the UK, the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group, the body of UK financial services trade associations which issues anti-money laundering guidance, has announced a couple of pieces of news. First, a consultation on amendments to crypto asset transfers. Uh, The amendments to the guidance provided for consultation respond to amendments made by Regulation 5 of the Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Amendment Regulations 2022. Now, they made an amendment to the Money Laundering Regulations 2017, which is the main set of regulations. Now, these in turn were a response to the Financial Action Task Force's recommendations on information sharing requirements for wire transfers, the travel rule, Uh, which was extended to crypto assets. The second piece of news from the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group is that it has announced a revision to Chapter 5, Customer Due Diligence, of Part 1 of its Anti-Money Laundering and Countering uh, Countering Terrorist Financing Guidance for the financial services sector. This is specifically concerned with additional verification checks in managing the risk of impersonation fraud. The amendments to Section 22 are available at the link in the podcast description and you have until the 25th of August 2023 to share your thoughts with the JMLSG. The link to the revision to Chapter 5 is also in the podcast description. Now, a little bit of news on bribery and anti-corruption. The BRICS Anti-Corruption Working Group, the BRICS of course being the Union of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, has announced the conclusion of a recent workshop on the gendered impacts of corruption. It identified the need to increase understanding of gender inequality and to raise awareness of the gendered effects of corruption and to outline where issues might affect integrity or efforts to counter corruption within its membership. I end this week's roundup of bribery and anti-corruption news with a direction to a blog post worth reading on the creation of a global anti-corruption court. In episode 58 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, I flagged how former Labour Member of Parliament and Government Minister, he's actually now a peer, I think, Lord Hayne, was seeking an amendment to the Economic Crime Bill to require the British government to back the establishment of an an international anti-corruption court, which would be closely analogous to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. I've linked back to that story in the podcast description, as well as providing a link to that blog post. Enjoy it if you dare. Other news, a bit of bit of mop-up news before we look at the cyber news this week. News of another notice of discontinuance relating to a deferred prosecution agreement. This comes out of the UK. In July 2021, 
A DPA was agreed between the Serious Fraud Office and two parties, Blue Solutions Limited and Tetris Projects Limited. The DPA, related to various bribery offences under the Bribery Act 2010, including the corporate failure to prevent bribery offence under Section 7. Both companies have complied with the obligations imposed under the DPA. The added I suppose interesting element of this case was that the initial DPA was anonymised and the de-anonymised DPA was published with the Notice of Discontinuance. The notice is in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with our usual roundup of cyber attack news and there is quite a bit to be going on with. So some new stuff and some updates on ongoing issues. So we start in Israel which has had recent attacks on critical infrastructure. Uh, again, these is some, this is something that we've reported before, particularly in relation to Israel. This time it's an attack on its largest oil refinery in Haifa. The Bazan Group websites were down, making it inaccessible to visitors, and no organisation has yet claimed responsibility. But I suspect it will be the usual gang of suspects lined up at some point could be anyone from Somalia, Iran, or associated places. In the US, Tempasili, which is the bed manufacturer, has announced that a cybersecurity event has caused it to shut down a portion of its systems. Temper has brought cyber experts on board to help in its response to the cyber attack. Sticking with North America, a cyber attack on three professional services websites which are hosted by the Health Employers Association of British Columbia in Canada. The attack may have compromised the personal data of thousands of individuals since the association represents around 200 employers. No organisation has claimed responsibility for the attack as yet. We'll stick with North America, this time dip back to the US, where it's believed that the Russian hacking group Midnight Blizzard is believed to be behind the cyber attack on the Microsoft Corporation, which was identified in May, but which continued continues rather to be investigated by specialists at Microsoft. Away from North America now to the United Kingdom, where there's quite a bit of news churning up, as you'll see in a moment. But we'll start with BPP University, which provides professional education to wannabe accountants and lawyers. It has announced that it's battling the impact of a cyber incident on its systems following access by an as yet unidentified third party. This has been going on for some time. The consequences of the attack are continued to be felt by the provider, which, but core systems apparently, according to reports, have been restored. With news now of the continuing impact of the Capita cyber attack, of course, you remember the loss of data that was caused there. Capita is a business services provider, provides support services both to government but also to businesses. Well, it's announced that John Lewis, the chief executive, has stepped away, or stepped down, sorry, to make way for Adolfo Hernandez, the VP of telecoms at Amazon Web Services, better known as AWS. The appointment of Hernandez comes as the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK is believed to be weighing up the size of the fine which is to be levied on Capita for the loss of data caused by the cyber attack. This news comes on the back of an announcement that Capita is expecting the cost of the cyber attack to be around £25 million, with the services provider expecting a pre-tax loss now of around £68 million for the first half of 2023. 
Further on the subject of collateral damage from cyber attacks, it's been reported this week by Aon, the global consultancy, that the year following a cyber attack can affect shareholder value by almost 10%. This can come as no surprise, and it's certainly worth bearing in mind for any company which thinks scrimping and saving on its cyber defence capabilities is a sound financial decision. On the plus side, it has been reported this week that response times to cyber attacks are falling as organisations and professionals working in the sector become more agile in responding to any threat. And I suppose that's got to be regarded as a good thing. Now, in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we reported on a cyber attack on the Wuhan Earthquake Centre in China. The attack was said to have been carried out by an overseas organisation. Well, the Chinese authorities have updated on this by announcing they believe it was committed by US-backed hackers who are believed to have been seeking to obtain geological data. There's been no claim of responsibility so far, but if it does turn out to be from the US, I can't imagine this is going to do an awful lot for Sino-US relations. In other cyber attack news this week, the Council of the European Union has updated on the alignment of third countries on restrictive measures against cyber attacks. The candidate countries, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Albania, Ukraine, Republic of Moldova and Bosnia and Herzegovina, the EFTA, the European Free Trade Association country, Norway, uh, and members of the European Economic Area, all align themselves with this Council decision 2023-964. Link in the podcast description. To the UK now, where there's been a good deal of interesting stuff coming out on cyber attacks and some interesting reading for you all. So we'll start with the National Cyber Security Centre, which has released its sixth annual report on active cyber defence. The following is taken from the circular. Small businesses constitute 99% of the UK's business ecosystem and are hence indispensable to national prosperity. In recognition of this, the ACD programme and its services aim to help protect these businesses from the harms caused by cyber attacks. The appetite for more knowledge and support with cybersecurity is evident, with a 39% increase in sign-ups to the ACD services in 2022. The new report provides insights into the key findings and important trends identified through the ACD programme. These include a record-breaking 7.1 million suspicious emails and websites reported to authorities in 2022, equivalent to one every five seconds. Phishing scams remain the most prevalent attack hosted in the UK, though the amount of global phishing campaigns hosted in the UK has declined. And it took less than six hours on average for the National Cyber Security Centre to remove reported malicious URLs from the internet. I've provided a link to the report in the podcast description. In news of another report from the UK, the government this week published its National Risk Register Report for 2023, The document is a broad risk assessment of threats to aspects of society from a range of variables, for example, cyber attacks and natural and environmental events. Well worth reading, but it is an involved and lengthy document, so set aside a good amount of time to commit to it. Link is in the podcast description. And finally this week, news from BlackBerry, which has published its quarterly Global Threat Intelligence Report, which, among other things, indicates that there's been a 40% increase in cyber attacks targeting government agencies and the public sector. In terms of the most targeted industries, quotes, healthcare and financial services industries, 
were among the most targeted sectors. In healthcare, the combination of valuable data and critical services presents a lucrative target for cybercriminals, resulting in ransomware gangs directly targeting healthcare organizations and in the proliferation of information-stealing malware or info-stealers. In terms of country-specific reports, in the second quarter, quotes, second quarter of 2023, the APT28 and the Lazarus Group, which are state-sponsored threat actors linked to Russia and North Korea respectively, were very active. These threat actors have a significant history of specifically targeting the United States, Europe and South Korea. Their focus extends across government agencies, military organizations, businesses and financial institutions, posing a serious threat to national security and economic stability. These threat groups continually adapt their techniques, making it challenging to defend against their attacks. It's an incredibly comprehensive report, and I'd suggest compulsory reading for anyone in compliance, anti-fraud or cyber defense. So if you haven't read it, take it on holiday with you and strap in for one hell of a ride. Well, that's it for episode 70 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.